This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? All set. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. My brother, Nick Anderson's here. Nanda Knives. Before we get to it, let's talk about a little bit of business. What do you say? Number one, Broadbeck Ironworks, maker, Broadbeck Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder, dynamite grinder made by knife makers for knife makers, sculptors, woodworkers. If you're removing material, this is for you. It's very versatile. Uh, it can go horizontal, it can go vertical. They have tons of different attachments, and they're always trying to create new attachments to help you because they make knives, and then they also remove material, so they know what you need. So go to broadbeckironworks.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10. You're going to get 10% off all the attachments, the grinders, and you say to yourself, well, how can I make it a little less expensive? Well, number one, get the get the the, the promo code, and number two is you can get it you can put it together. You can have them put it together. You can get it unpainted. There's a lot of options. And if you don't have a, a Broadback Ironworks chassis, you can still use a lot of their uh, terrific attachments. So go to BroadbackIronworks.com. It was great to see Ryan over at Maker Camp. And uh, I'm with you. Next are my friends at Even Heat. Even Heat are the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. To find your next oven, go to evenheat-kiln.com. Another great guy. I saw Spence at Maker Camp. What a great guy. A wonderful family out in Michigan. I love these guys. Definitely check out the tap control. It's like an iPad for your... It's an iPad. It's great. The solid state drive is awesome. Or if you want, you can also get their new turn and burn, which isn't even new. It was an old way that they used to do it. And... I guess Neil Camamora says, I don't want all these computers. I just want to set it and forget it. And they made a, brought it back an old design where you just turn on the temperature you want, and that's it. So go check out what's going on over there, evenheat-kiln.com. I have two. I love them very much. Uh, they're very easy to work. They're very easy to use. I use um, the Ramp Master over the Center for Metal Arts. Terrific. I got my solid-state drive, my tap control here. It's all great, and they're very easy. And if you have questions, go call them up. They're awesome people, too. Thank you very much, Even Heat. Next are my friends at Nordic Edge. That's Nord Nordic underscore Edge on Instagram or NordicEdge.com.au. They're an Australian knife-making and metalworking company. They have stuff for blacksmiths and bladesmiths. They teach classes. Uh, they do lots of stuff with knife makers. They have uh, great stuff that they've built like screw on carbide file guides and then they have broaching tools and then they have bevel jigs they have everything you need to get stocked and resupplied and if you're australia abrasives grinders tooling handle kits all that material if you want to get if you want to just figure out if, if knife making is for you they have already heat treated knives and uh, scales and stuff like that and then you can decide hey listen maybe this is for me so go check out what they got going on over at nordicedge.com.au and if you're in Canada, you gotta go see my boy, Lawrence Lake, Maritime Knife Supply. That's MaritimeKnifeSupply.com for all your knife making needs, belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat treating ovens, anvils. They got damage steel, they got combat, they have broadback, they have everything that you think they want. You know why? Because Lawrence is a knife maker. I saw him forging an integral bolstered knife at maker camp the guy knows what he's doing he also has different types of material that is not standard to a knife making supply he gave me some uh, 1080 uh, hex material that's really t super awesome he's always has new stuff in, in stock and if you're in the united states or if you're in canada it don't matter so go to uh, maritime knife and check out what
what they got. They have all the TR Maker stuff. He's If you're into knife making or you want to get into knife making, Maritime Knife Supply has what you need. And if they don't, tell him and he'll get it. So go check out what's going on over at MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. I want to thank my boys at Trojan Horse Forge. That's Sam Evans and Jeff Graz. They make this, they're the makers of the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. This thing is insane. Insane. It's awesome. It's not just for handles. They have these plates to bolt on to allow you to hand sand comfortably. And you will 100% have a more enjoyable and safer way to go than just clamping on a two by fours that's bullshit if you don't if you don't mind me saying so go get yourself one of them trojan horse forge uh stable rail knife finishing vices or the other things they have like the handle press attachment like the t4 sentinel oil which is really awesome stuff and if you put in the promo code full blast 10 you're gonna get 10 percent off all your order i love the t4 sentinel oil it's great stuff if you're trying to you want to coat your blades or something it's really good stuff it comes in these little glass beakers makes you feel like you're a doctor it makes you feel like you're a doctor but you're not <laughs> I'm, let me just make it very clear just because you have a vial that makes you think you're a doctor i don't mean you're a doctor so you check out what's going on over at trojanhorseforge.com put in the promo code full blast 10 get yourself 10 percent off okay Next are my boys, Koi and the boys over at Baker Forge and Tool. That's BakerForge.com. They are the makers of some amazing stuff. Very repeatable, uh, patterned, welded steels and, and tiger mize, bronze mize, copper mize. That's the, with the shim and the core in the middle. I've been using it for a long time. And if you're a stock removal person and you want a little razzle-dazzle in your life, go get yourself some of that uh, Baker Forge and tool stuff. Go to Baker Forge and Tool on Instagram, and you can go to BakerForge.com. And if you put in the promo code, full blast, get you 10% off everything. Gets you 10% off the copper mine, the bronze mine, the sand mine, the mosaic Damascus. They, I don't know how they do it so repeatedly. I have had nothing but success, and I'm a lump. I'm a lump, and I am not. I'm. I have. I'm not. I am not Nick Anderson. I am not a extraordinary knife maker. I'm a mediocre a hack, and I can make this stuff work. So if I can make it work, you can make it work. And when you need to etch it, go get yourself some of that gator piss, ladies and germs. You know what I'm talking about. Get that gator piss. It is this their proprietary etchant that everyone's talking about because the name's crazy. But the funny thing is, is the name's crazy, but it's working because everyone's talking. No one talks about ferric chloride etchants like they talk about that gator piss. And if you go to BakerForge.com, put in the promo code uh, full blast, you get 10% off. And if you're in the EU, go get yourself some of that uh, gator piss over DIY Europe.eu, and uh, they are the only people who have it. And uh, it's awesome stuff, and uh, definitely give it a check. Check it out. Next are my friends at Total Boat. That's totalboat.com slash full blast for uh, some sort of <laughs> some sort of. <laughs> that's the link to get you a little bit of money off and to help me out. And let me tell you something about this two-part epoxy. I hear a lot of knife makers say, oh, I only use this because it's marine-grade epoxy. The total boat, it it's marine grade epoxy, and it's so hard. It's actually I try to do a uh, I try to do a uh, like a, a ASMR thing, try to scrape it off. I couldn't scrape it off. Its stuff is awesome, and for knife making, it's dynamite. So definitely check out what's going on. Even if you're a knife maker and you say, "Well, I only use this marine grade," this is marine grade stuff. Go to totalboat.com slash full blast and get yourself, that's the affiliate code and gives you a little bit of money off, gives you a little money to me. I'm with you. Next are my friends at GL Hansen and Sons. They're the makers of G Carta, which is a unique composite of natural fibers, fabrics mixed with epoxy under pressure. 
Get yourself some Bofa. Get yourself some Riffle, Ripple Cup. Tuxini by Mikey. Mahi Mahi. Radio Worm G. Carta. Pheasant by Mikey. Colorama by Mikey. Hoopla by Mikey. I got to meet this Mikey someday. <laughs> Amazing colors and razzle-dazzle to make your project beautiful and it finishes easy. And then they have, they have always come up with new colors. So basically, it's like cross-cut micarta. They make blocks of this colored micarta. And they use different colors and different patterns. And it really is special stuff. So go to uh, gcarta.bigcartel.com. Get yourself a couple slabs. You won't regret it. And last but not least, I want to thank my boys over at Tormac. Celebrating 50 years in business with the black T8 sharpening system. It's a water-cooled sharpening system. I love Tormac. I didn't used to until I... I I fought the Tormac. I got a Tormac years ago, and it just wasn't working for me at the time. One of the reasons why this wasn't a better, I wasn't as good a knife maker as I could have been, and I didn't use, I didn't read the instructions, and I and I thought I could just kind of wing it, and I didn't, and I made a mistake. This has made me a better knife maker. It has given me a lot more versatility. It's given me a lot more. My I'm more efficient. I make better knives. I have better geometry now, and I really love the Tormac. So go get yourself one of them Tormex at Tormac.com. Go to at Tormac underscore sharpening on, on Instagram. Check out their hard get sharp uh, their uh, diamond wheels. Check out all the different stuff they have. I, I'm telling you, I'm all in on Tormac, and I think I think. My friend, if you're in the EU, they're all over the EU. But I think my boy uh, Toby Morell has it over at, at uh, U- uh, UK Knife Maker Supplies. I think he's. A, I think he has has it. So get yourself one of them Tormex. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am very honored to have my friend back. Nick Anderson is here. Nanda Knives. I had a good conversation with him a couple years ago. A lot's happened since then. Nick Anderson, what is going on? Not much, man. How are you doing? How have you been? Good, man. It's definitely been a year of new beginnings for sure. Why do you say that? Um, well, I, uh, a lot of things happened this year, uh, one of which was the main thing, probably moving up north to Northern California. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I was in Oakland for five years, and last year during the summer moved to Northern California, uh, Humboldt County. Right. And, uh, yeah, many things have happened since then. Uh, bought a house. That's been kind of the craziest thing <laughs> wow. ever. Um, started a new shop up here. I actually started two new shops because I started one, got it completely set up, and then after all that was pretty much there, kind of decided it wasn't going to work out for all the things that I do, uh, specifically doing classes. Um, so after getting that first shop set up, had to set up a whole second shop, but it's been a gigantic improvement and, uh, no regrets around any of that. Are the, are the shops combined or are they connected or? Um, so my first shop now has kind of become my glass, uh, glass shop and I have my CNC stuff set up in there. So, um, it is related, but it's definitely not my knife shop. Can you Uh, walk from one to the other? Oh, definitely not. Uh, so oh. the uh, yeah, my home shop is about a fifteen-minute drive away, and my knife shop is in Arcata, okay. and so I'm in Humboldt County, which is <clears throat> essentially uh, Eureka, Arcata, and McKinleyville, and they're all kind of next to each other. So not too bad of a drive to get to my knife shop, but it's actually really nice to have everything kind of separated like that. Last time we talked, we had a long conversation about your time in Asia. 
And yeah. It, it was an amazing conversation. We didn't even really talk about food that much, which is fine. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to that today. Uh-huh. I was fascinated by the fact that right before pandemic, you right literally before pandemic, you went and spent some time with Salem, Sarab. Right. And then now I've been watching what you've been doing, and I, I feel as though the class, teaching the classes is relatively new within the past couple of years. Am I wrong? That's a new thing, yeah. That started, I guess that started late 2019, but kind of a soft start. And then I, I really, you know, I really turned it up after the pandemic because it was kind of like I got started late 2019. By the time I barely got off the ground, the pandemic hit and then classes right. were kind of a no-go. So, um, yeah, I would say that kind of, I forget right when I got back into it, but it's been a, about a couple years now. Yeah, so fairly new. What made you want to start doing teaching? And I, I ask I, this for this reason. I've talked to a lot of teachers. I've ta- I, 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 I do teach myself. And there has to be a mindset for why you want to teach. And I'll, the reason why is in blacksmithing and bladesmithing, it isn't, it isn't, you don't do it for the money because yeah. it is an extraordinary amount of work. It absolutely is, yeah. Are you talking about the classes or the actual Just trade itself? Doing, doing classes. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a whole <clears throat> separate job. And separate thing. I mean, not to call it a job, but it's a whole separate uh, enterprise, really. Um, whole separate set of skill sets. It's right. definitely related to the skills you use, and your expertise is absolutely paramount to teaching a, a good class. But being good at a thing definitely doesn't make you a good teacher. That's so right. that's been a huge learning curve for me, um, how to teach it effectively, but also how to like manage a positive experience, I guess. Yeah. So, because a lot of these people that take my classes don't have future aspirations to be knife makers, so they kind of want to work with their hands, they want to try it out, they might be super into cooking or something like that, and, you know, they want to see what it feels like to, and what it takes to make a knife, but after that, they're probably not going to do it again, so a lot of it is just kind of an experiential thing. So, that's actually kind of been a, I guess, like a secondary thing that I've been trying to get better at, is is not only viewing it from what is the quality of the instruction, but like what kind of experience am I giving the people taking this class? And it might be the case that if I teach more advanced subjects that I might get more true knife makers, but I haven't done a ton of that yet. I've done a little bit of that in my private classes, but for the most part, I've done a lot of uh, introductory. I know that there have been a number of guys who've sent me messages, guys or gals, who've sent me messages saying, I'm with Nick right now. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 Gary, I, I believe, was writing you when... Uh, Who? I believe uh, Gary, I forget his last name, but I believe he was writing you when he was in my class. And Sometimes uh, I get... I love that because it, 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 it's, it's, it's awesome. And, and I'm a surprised when you say that, what you're also saying something... I had Nick Rossi on a couple weeks ago. Right, and he said down. something that was surprised me too is that most of the people who take his classes don't want to be knife makers. Yeah. And that surprises me because... And I, and I, I was... Because most of the time when I do knife making classes, they all want to be knife makers. And they're mm. all... They're, but I also think that they're also... They're all knife talk listeners. Like right. I get a lot of knife talk guys. So it's, mm. it, that's always surprising to me that, that there, are, there are, and it's very encouraging that there are so many people who don't want to be knife makers who, have, who say, hey, this would be fun for the weekend. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say percentage-wise, it's probably, I don't know, 75 or 80%, which I'd, I'd kind of like it to be a, you know, more, more balanced towards the knife maker end of the spectrum, but probably a result of 
maybe my initial outreach methods. I, I you know, um, I guess I guess when I started doing it, it was a lot of uh, connection through the blacksmithing community right. and kind of like one of the blacksmithing organizations, the California Blacksmithing Association, and some of the future or some of the like further uh, contacts that might have sprung from that. But um, I, so I think a lot of the people that might have initially taken the class, if they were related to metalworking, were probably just blacksmithing or had like a, an interest in blacksmithing. And then the other thing is just, uh, I guess over the years, just uh, a lot of the people surrounding the shop in Oakland were just kind of people in the tech industry and stuff like that. Right, so, money to burn. Yeah, money to burn, which definitely is a great problem to have uh, as far as a teacher when you have students that people can, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely uh, expensive for the space, it's expensive for the equipment, it's expensive for everything to, you know, set up a proper work environment or teaching environment for this stuff. So, you know, the classes aren't necessarily cheap, but... They can't be. They can't be, yeah. They can't be. Absolutely. It's, it's also... Because I, I know that I, I I rarely do anything. I used to. I had a. I've done a couple things in this shop. In this shop, but I remember when I was the center for mental arts and I was in charge of setting up the shops before mm. the classes. Because we were doing, you know, during the week we would be working on railings and stuff, and then we would have a teacher come in, and then we'd have right. to prep for the classes. And I just remember how how long it took to prepare the shop for the classes you oh yeah to get the anvils where they're supposed to be and you got to make sure you have enough fuel and you got to make sure you have this and you got to make sure you yep. have enough band-aids and you got to have make sure that you cut the stock you can't you can't cut the stock before they sh after they show up and you, you got to oh, have yeah. a deburred it's just everything was like it was such an ordeal and i remember mm. i've had a couple things here and i know how much of an ordeal it is to prepare for a class and then when it's done you're dead because if even if it's just a weekend class, yep. you're getting up early. Maybe you're it's taking. Maybe things aren't working your way, and you're not leaving at a normal time. Maybe, and then you got to come in the next morning, and then all of a oh, sudden yeah. you realize, oh shit, I need some more gas. Where am I going to uh -huh. be able to get some more propane <laughs> tomorrow for tomorrow morning? Oh, and yeah. then everything is like you know. And then at the end, when everybody's leaving, you're dead. And then it's Sunday afternoon. You got to go back to work on Monday, and you're <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah, you have that too, huh? You have that. You I've have to actually go back road. to work. Nick, it's crazy. I've been down this road for like 15 <laughs> years. I've gone down the road to the point where I was helping my friend John Ledford, and we we were opening up. We had a shop not too far from where I am, yep. and we were going to do classes. And we and I said to him, "The juice isn't worth the squeeze." Mm. We'd have. He says, "Oh, don't worry. All you have to do is set up, and then we'll get the teachers in, and then they'll do all the hard work." Oh God, it sucked, and it yeah. was like exhausting, <laughs> and it was mm -hmm. like peanuts and i taught sculpture classes and i taught knife making i didn't teach any knife making class i taught basic blacksmithing classes and and it was like i was just shot i come home and hillary and hillary would say to me are you all right i'm like no fuck dead <laughs> fucking dead you're dead i've been teaching the class like that you're dead i mean when i teach i count a whole day of setup right. in advance of the class a whole day of takedown so yeah. that takes a three-day class and turns it into a five-day class yeah I also have to manage sign-ups, students, posting of the class info. Um, promotion. You know, promotion. Back and forth with the individual students, of which there's usually six uh, for each class. And then after the classes, a lot of the students, fortunately, are really happy about it, but they want to chat and, you know, continue talking about certain things. And, you know, I, I respond to them. And that that's its own bit of time as well. So... There's definitely a lot that goes into it. A three-day class is probably a six-day investment, and uh, and that doesn't count everything around the. I mean, 
I'm in Northern California now, and I'm still teaching sometimes in Oakland, so I got to pack my truck full of oh. three additional bench grinders, oh. everything, you know. Oh. You know, like the, the woes of knife making are already that you need so many things for so many processes. And so, you know, uh, the way that affects your classes is that you're, you know, pretty much uh, traveling south with a truck just like packed to the gills of all this equipment and just hoping to God you didn't forget like oh. a crucial thing. Like, you know, you need six worn 36 grit belts you need six new 36 grit belts and then you need your wood belts and your 120s and your steel and like i can't tell you how many times i've been like holy shit did i bring the steel or did i bring this one thing and like you said sometimes you did forget a little thing you got to wake up before the class drive to some random store in the bay right and you know go for a uh, hail mary that they have the thing that you need oh you know that, that's the that's the crazy the worst part for me was always and it wasn't the teaching. It was, I was, every shop I was in, for some reason, I was in charge of the installation kit. Mm. So we were installing railings or grills or anything we were installing. For some reason, I became the installation guy. So mm. I would be in charge of packing up all the tools and all the bits and all the parts and making sure we had all the parts, making sure everything was painted and the, and the saddles and the, and the screws and the bits and the taps and... <laughs> And I just hated it. I hated it so much because I oh, I would never sleep because I would think, did I have? Do I have enough redundant taps in case we break a tap? What if we break a tap? How are we going to extract the tap? It, yep. it was like nonstop, and that's the thing. I, I actually I teach the only I only only teach two classes. I don't even think it's referred to as teaching. I think I'm an instructor. <laughs> I'm an instructor for the Center for Mental Arts, and I I put all the stuff you need in one box, mm. and it never leaves the box. Oh yeah, and then and then. And then, and then when I, so when I'm loading up, I kind of go over the, in the box for the friction folders and I keep it every, I don't take anything out. It always stays in there no matter what. And I still find myself being like, God, I really wish I brought one more 316 drill. I really Jeez. wish I did. But the, the, but that's the crazy part. I mean, that's the crazy part is, is like, it's obviously you're not doing it for the money because I mean mm. even because you're doing it because you 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 have you end up having these really rewarding experiences with the students, right? Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's kind of the the main thing that the main reason why I want to have some hand in teaching. Um, you're totally right that it's. I mean, from a financial standpoint, there's definitely venues that are you know more more uh, lucrative, I guess. Um, yeah, you just sell more knives. You sell know. more knives. Yeah. I mean, knife making itself has its own sort of, uh, you know, juice being worth the squeeze right. uh, <laughs> conundrum, uh, which it is, you know. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing you got to think about quite a bit, or that you know, you find yourself thinking about quite a bit. But um, you know, uh, yeah. And for teaching, I guess some of the most valuable experiences I've ever had in my life uh, have come from teachers that taught me really valuable things. One of which is Salem Straub. I was just telling him the other day, um, I'm working on a new Damascus pattern that I'm kind of crazy about, really into. And, you know, none of that would have happened if Salem hadn't taught me everything he knew about that over the course of a week, or like nine days actually up north. Um, with working Argentium Silver in Thailand, I, I learned uh, from a teacher who just taught me everything she knew as much as she could in the time period. And uh, che Americano in Thailand, all, all these kind of mentor figures, looking back, have, have kind of given me some of the most valuable experiences I've ever had, really. Um, so I, I would never want to make knives in a vacuum, I guess, is, is my thing. I, I would always want to have some hand in 
because you spend so much time learning. Knife making is so vast and you spend so much time learning just so much information and it's so dense and there's so much to know. So to, to never put any of that back out there would kind of be a shame to me. Hmm. And so I guess that's my baseline thinking around it. As far as then executing the classes and how often you do them, that's its whole own thing. Um, I have definitely hit a point to where I've been kind of exhausted from teaching too much. And, you know, there's, there's a point at which I was doing two classes per month, two three-day classes. And that's a lot. That's a lot. And that was, that was amidst running a full-time business for my design work and also being a knife maker. And so um, there's too many things all at once. And it's how, it's how you said, like, you spend these three days teaching the class, a day before for setup, a day for takedown. It's, and, and you know, I, I don't know whether I'm more introverted or extroverted. Uh, sometimes I feel one way more than the other. But I do have to say that after teaching that much over the course of three days, I'm, I'm pretty, like, spent just from a, an output sort of thing. Uh, yeah, because you're just, you're just, there's so many questions coming your way, and there's so much you have to think critically about. And you're just... You're, you're, you're talking so much and you're conveying so much knowledge that at the, at the end of that, I always just want to hide in my room yeah. and you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're spent. And so, and then you got to go back to work. Usually, you know, you kick off the work week on Monday with <laughs> clients asking you a million questions right after that. So it, it's, it's a lot all at once. You're, when you say clients, you also do a lot of, you have a tech company, right? Or like, uh, a, yeah, I have a, I have a kind of a digital design company doing right. uh, graphic and web design. Um, I have tapered that down a little bit. Um, it might be something we can start about or talk about a bit, but I'm kind of involved with this startup now that's a little bit related to metalworking. And so I have tapered the design work down a bit, which is kind of nice. Um, it's nice to have been transitioning into this new thing. <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, but still still to say, after the end of the weekend, I'm still going back to work full time. You're, you're busy. You're really busy. <laughs> it's really kind of ridiculous. <laughs> But I guess I've always kind of been that way. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's my own doing, I guess. And it's just expensive to live in California. So you kind of have to, you know, there's not a lot of time to lay back and uh, not do anything. I, I'm new to California. My, my daughter's now in, uh, in Los Angeles. So mm. I'm, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're getting the whole California vibe. Mm. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm dragging my feet, New Yorker, is I'm dragging my feet to enjoying California. But my kid sends pictures of pomegranates outside of her dorm room, and it's infuriating, frankly. Oh, yeah. you know, so, but, but he, Our produce think, is awesome here. It's, it's crazy. Actually, I, it's constantly blowing my mind, uh, just the produce at the farmer's markets here. My kid said the mangoes are ridiculous and we've been getting screwed in New York for years. <laughs> She's just like, we're getting, screwed. you're getting screwed in New York. But I had a question. I just saw that episode of Seinfeld where they talk about how bad the produce is. I think it was Seinfeld, but, uh, you know, yeah, I've heard it's a thing on the East well, Coast. Well, it's, it's just not awesome. It's just not like, I mean, it's not like California. But at mm. the same time, it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I, uh, you know, I can't help myself. I have, I'm, I'm a self-hating New Yorker. Most of the <laughs> so I have a question for you based on all this stuff. And, mm. and I, I feel just watching you on Instagram and, and, and talking to you before and kind of seeing where you're going, I feel like you're going in these new avenues. Yeah. Are you happy? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm being. I'm being honest. I'm happy, happy. Yeah. I to put it like completely honestly. Um. Yeah, I'm happy, and 
you know, sometimes I feel a little bit burnt out. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to, but, I'm not trying to, I'm not, this is not like a, no, I love it. I love, I love getting into this. I mean, these, these are the kinds of things I, you know, think about this sort of stuff all the time. So. I I just, I'm at a different part of my life and I'm trying to find, I, I'm just at a different part of my life that I didn't expect to be in. And I just yeah. wonder, especially talking to younger, uh, you know, knife makers and metal workers and blacksmiths and artists and people who put stuff out with their hands. A yeah. lot of the times you will find yourself in a position, especially people who listen to this podcast, makers mm. for lack of a better word, is that you found something that you love to do and then you're trying to figure out a way to make it financially supportive of you because yeah. you're creating something that gives you a degree of happiness as opposed to what you could be doing. Yeah. So I wonder, are you happy? Yeah, I would say day in and day out, I'm able to have fun. And that's like... There's times in my life where I felt like I have not been able to. Right. And that sucks. Um, you know, the year, last year when I was moving up here, um, I was moving my house, I was moving my shop. I had to work more than I ever have because I was spending more than I ever have. <clears throat> um, it was extremely difficult and it was extremely taxing and I was burnt out. I was legitimately burnt out and I did not feel happy then. Um, it was, it was too much and I knew it was too much and I knew it was probably going to be too much even going into it just cause you have these periods that are just particularly demanding of you and you kind of have to take those sorts of things on sometimes to, to start a new chapter or to do something that builds further foundation. So that was, that was definitely one of those times in my life where I wasn't happy and it probably lasted a good six months of that, like very high intensity uh, to where I knew it was too much and that it needed to be less so or that it just needed to be different. Um, it's interesting because I, I've, I, I talked to a lot of listeners and I met a, couple, a number of listeners when we were at Maker Camp and then they were talking mm. about how the fact that they appreciate this show and Knife Talk because, you know, we're kind of a little bit more on the honest side and we kind yeah. of, we all talk about the same things. I'm in a different part of my... Once my kid got into college and... Now my kid's been in college for about two months, and she's thrilled. She's happy, loves it. She, Amazing. She just got a great. She just got an awesome uh, term report on a on a law. She's in a law class, and I'm like begging her to be a lawyer. I'm like, I swear to God, <laughs> all I want is it's like, yo, you'd be a great lawyer. She goes, Why do you say that? I said, because you're fucking good at arguing. You're so good at it. She just got this banging grade in this law class. I'm like, bro, Amazing. I'm gonna ride you now. Now you're gonna be a fucking lawyer. And she hates that I say that. But I'm like, but you're so good at it. And I'm like working on it. And and it, I we have this. We have my wife and I are now back to the old days when we lived. We got out of college in the '90s and we're living together. And we're I'm trying to find a, a different degree of happiness, you know. Mm, and yeah. what's interesting is, is with knife making is I'm I've, I've we've we've the company has caught over a few hurdles. Number one is we've been able to get out from behind the custom orders and we have stuff on the website to buy direct. Nice. We're That's getting, really difficult to do. It's really hard. We got it done. We got employees that are, that are great, and we, I, I'm, I've gotten a lot better at managing them all. And, but I'm starting to find myself: Am I still happy doing this? Mm. And I am, except for the fact that it brings me back. I was at a art show this past weekend, 
And my sister was the curator. She did an awesome job. And the art was really awesome. It was very, the show was very inspiring. The mm. show was very inspiring for me to go back to making sculpture. Mm. So my wife's going back to California for a parents weekend. I'm staying around and I have been planning now for a week. I'm working. I'm just this weekend. I'm just going to make sculpture. And Amazing. I found myself thinking of a couple, you know, maybe six or eight months ago that I can, I'm cool not making sculpture anymore. Hmm, but I yeah. found the difference between making knives and making sculpture to be totally, it's a total different type of enjoyment and happiness. Totally different. Absolutely. And, do you and think, if, oh, not to cut you up. Do you think part of that comes from, so for me, some people seem to feed into the doing things repeatedly and getting better at that same thing over and over and over. And that's kind of where they maybe feel some sort of expansiveness or some sort of inspiration. Um, I'm kind of the opposite with my own knife making. When I get into a, a sort of process where I know what's around the bend for every single step of the process, I kind of lose inspiration a little bit and it loses its magic to me. And I, I feel like I know the thing that makes me happy and I'm, I'm at least very fortunate to kind of know what it is and I know when I don't have it, and I know when I do have it, it feels so amazing. And that is kind of being lost in the sort of um, creative unknown, I guess, for lack of a better term. Okay. When you're kind of working on something that you've never worked on before that's challenging you, that's both maybe a new thing that you're learning and getting better at, but that you don't know how it's going to turn out, and you're just hoping so badly that it looks amazing. And there's always the possibility that it won't. I mean, you have pieces sometimes that you don't hit the mark or you finish it and it, it it's maybe not the amazing thing you were hoping for. So that sort of unknown of how is this going to come out and it might be, you know, to me at least, the best thing I've made, um, that is kind of like a magical thing. And it, it just makes me so happy. Oh, I can <clears throat> be in my shop for days uninterrupted by myself, 12-hour days, I, I swear I don't even get tired as easily. I, uh, I bring the work <laughs> to the shop with me, and I'll literally bring it back home and stare at it all night until I go to, to bed. Wow. And sometimes I will actually bring it into bed with me. <laughs> oh, my God. You're such a coveter. You covet. <laughs> it's, You're coveting your work. It's absolutely a thing. You fucking covet hey. your work. That's, I, I'm, I a, I'm totally against coveting your work. You are. You covet your work. I've never heard of somebody you doing, know what it is? bring it to it's, bed. It's not. It's not. <laughs> you covet your work. It's a funny way to put it. But it's like. You're thinking what it is, is thinking about the next step that you're going to do. And that part of looking at it and kind of thinking, what could I do next? I could go this way. I could go that way. And each step of the process kind of poses a new decision to make or a new way you can go. And that's where it's so fun. And that's, that's where the creativity to me is the highest. And when I'm the most creative, I'm the happiest. And it's been like that for me, my entire life, no matter what the medium is. It can be that way even with cooking or, or anything else. But as long as I'm kind of in that creative, like kind of the ability to lose yourself in creativity is kind of where I'm the happiest. And I at least know that. Well, here's the interesting thing, because I've been thinking about your work a lot. I want to talk about the glass work for a while I want, at mm. some point, but at the same time, I want to kind of like stick on this mm -hmm. particular no, topic. Your work and my work are totally different, totally different. Mm. And the reason why is you're very process oriented. Mm. I hate, 
I force myself <laughs> into process. Like mm. I, when you were talking, we were talking about doing volume. We just did, we just knocked out uh, 20 knives for this winery and they gave us sparrow wood and we stabilized the wood and we knocked out these 20 knives and we're a month and a half ahead of schedule. Mm. And it's like that I like, I like the fact that do we have the discipline to get this done and can we get it behind? Can we get it in with everything else? And can we, you know, be disciplined enough to get them everything look the same? And can we do this in, on time? And it's right. I like that because it makes totally. me, rem, reminds me of being in metal shops and it makes me feel as though we're a professional company. Mm -hmm. I like that. But the problem to me is the difference between that and making sculpture is for me, my sculpture is different than your work. I'm assuming. I'm assuming because my work, mm. and I talk to a lot of blacksmiths like Pat Quinn, who is very process oriented and very meticulous, and Mareko Mamasi. I can list off a pile of people mm. who are very Salem, a very process oriented and very detailed. Charlie Lionheart, all your boys, mm -hmm. even maybe Josh Prince might be the only Absolutely. person. Josh <laughs> Prince might be the only exception, but we talk about that later. Mm. I don't. The thing about forge, about blacks, about knife making, I was just saying knife making, is it's hard for me to be spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And when I'm making sculpture, there are moments where I'm just like, well, that was a nice thing that happened. Let's go with it. Totally. And I have these moments of true, beautiful spontaneousness mm -hmm. that allows me to say, well, that's the way it's going to be. And that that and then when there's these successful moments that weren't exactly planned, I was just talking to my guy working here, and and uh, I said I don't bring I don't don't talk to me about calipers. I ain't bringing calipers in the shop. <laughs> and don't fucking cal. We're not talking thousands. I'm not even gonna learn how to, to talk about thousands. Mm -hmm. I feel the strongest when I'm making sculpture and I have these moments of spontaneity, whether it's with the paintbrush or whether it's carving or whether it's you know a line I've designed, I drew out, draw out. And I feel as though I can't get that that wonderful, these wonderful moments of spontaneity making knives. Yeah. And that's the one thing is now, about to be 50, Nick, I'm about to be 50, <laughs> and I'm trying to find my joy. And I'm mm. now that Fader Knives is doing well enough that I don't have to sell my sculpture, I want to make sculpture because I don't have to sell it. And that's for me. You do want to make sculpture. I yes. want to make sculpture now, and yeah. I, it's not for the money. I want um, to make it because I got no choice. I once had, I used to tell these. I had uh, interns for a while back in the day when I was just making sculpture straight. Yeah. And this mother came to me. The mother of the intern said to me, "When my son wants to be an artist, what's the most important thing?" And I said, "You got to want to make sculpture or paint or whatever so badly that if you were deserted on an island." with no hope of, of rescue, mm -hmm. all you want to do is make sculpture. He's like, that, oh, absolutely. that's what making a sculpture is. isn't because I'm trying to knock out this, you know, knock out a couple bucks. I'm now at the point now where I'm making sculpture because I want to make sculpture, whether regardless or not, it's for sale or not. And totally. now I'm finding a new form of happiness because and I didn't have like, that before. I feel like if you were stuck on an island with only that to do, is that's kind of my like dream scenario. <laughs> right, right. I mean, but I mean, that's the true. That's the true compulsion. Absolutely. That's the true compulsion. No? Oh yeah, it's the kind of thing where you would do it no matter what. I Re mean, regardless. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, the money. The money is only a means to an end. In which case, for me, I, I think. The money, the money is exciting to me because it allows me to buy bigger and better tools and have, you know, a cool shop and all of that. Um, I'm always just wanting to do knife making more than I currently get to. It's always a thing. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a means to an end to just keep doing the thing that, like you said, you would do regardless. I got to get back to something you said. Hmm. You cover. I'm saying you covet your work. I'm saying you covet your work, and I'm, wor- I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you because you admitted it. You admit. I, I say covet. And it sounded to me you're bringing this, bringing this shit to the bed. That means you're coveting it. I have. I, know, I can't help it, man. You got to. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like, go ahead. <laughs> it's where I get all my ideas. It's like if I don't do it right after I did it, and 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 that that moment at which I'm the happiest about it. I'll I'll kind of lose it. I I won't the, come back to it. What's the biggest thing you brought brought in your bed? <laughs> I, I think the most dangerous is definitely just my knives. I've definitely you brought a woken knife up. to your bed. Yeah, it's kind of weird. You put it on the bed stand. <laughs> or you bring it in bed with you. You tuck it uh, in. You know, sometimes you fall asleep before you get expected. the fuck out sometimes of here. You your laptop it in? falls off the bed, and uh, you know you got to replace your screen because of it. That's definitely happened. Are you telling me, with all due honesty, you're fucking bringing it into bed or you're tucking hey, dude, it in next to you? Artists are weird people. That's why yeah. we. Uh, that's why we make the things we do. This is the weirdest admission of all time. You bring it hey, into bed with you, put hey, it in a pillow, and you got to be honest. You got to come yeah, clean about these. I things. appreciate that. I appreciate that, Nick. I got okay. damn it. I appreciate and the I'll fact. Tell you, I'll tell you what else. It hasn't happened just once. It's probably happened <laughs> either two or three times. <laughs> Woken up, uh, you know, next to next to a sharp object. And uh, oh my you know, god, is that is. is compulsion, dude. Hey, at least I didn't like <laughs> cut the, cut the pillow uh, in two. <laughs> totally. Oh my god, or like uh, drop it on my face while I'm looking at it. Oh, uh, god, dear. hopefully god, I'm, I'm just showing all my cards here. But <laughs> well, I tell you why I say that. I think that I feel that coveting is is ultimately not good for the artistic person and i'll tell you huh, why that's interesting to me well i'm convinced I, i'm convinced mm-hmm. and this took me a long time and i used to not t- to talk about it but i'll talk about it now mm. my father was is still today one of my favorite painters he died i don't know a number of years ago 15 years yeah. 12 15 years ago i've i've i've, I've blocked it out from, frankly in regard that's for another day and he was an awesome painter and he was an awesome painter and he did these city landscapes he was mm-hmm. really, really exceptional at doing these city landscapes. He had the streets and the lights and the and the foreshortening and the the lighting and the sky and the streets and the architecture. It was pretty amazing how uh, he just understood it to, a, to an incredible degree. He also used paint with gusto. Like he would make a mark and then that would be the mark. And you'd use colors that you wouldn't expect to use. And then all of a sudden you'd use mm-hmm. a palette and then he'd use a palette knife and then he'd give a schmear here. And the next thing you know, you're just like, God damn it. That looks like that street. Totally. He really had this talent, real, real talent. And mm. to the point where I grew up just looking at his work and seeing his work and understanding his work and just being like, God, this is just as good as any other this is this should be in a, a gallery. This mm. is there could be a solo show. This stuff is amazing. And he would never he had opportunities and he just always passed them on. And I always wondered why. Like, why is my father not a famous painter? I mean, he's an awesome painter. I mean, he'd been painting, he went to World War II and then he used the GI Bill to take art classes and in uh, New York and in Paris. He was a talented painter. He was a graphic Your designer. Your dad fought in World War II. My dad was my dad. If crazy enough, my I was born when he was fifty. So when I turned fifty, Damn. when I turned fifty, he, if we were if he was still alive, there's this short stretch between December and February, his birthday in February, where he mm. I would be fifty and he'd be a hundred. So he would be a hundred. He'd be yeah yeah yeah. He'd be a hundred right now. So he died when he was Damn. in his eight in his late eighties. 
So he, and he was young too. He, he, um, after Pearl Harbor, he forged his mom's signature and then he joined the army early. So he was like Holy 17 cow. when he joined the army. He wasn't wow. supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. But he, awesome painter. Never went into mm. galleries, never had shows. He could have even hung him up in a show of just not for sale. He just didn't, he chose not to. Yeah. I was convinced based on the kind of personality he had and also the little, I had my psychological dossier I had on him. <laughs> he coveted his work. And he's, hmm. no, I don't want to. He covered his work. And I came to the conclusion that he felt that when he had something that he really, really liked, he coveted it. Hmm. And if and it was this mental block where I believe that he thought in his, you know, in his subconscious that it's not going to get better than this. So I don't want it to leave. And I hmm. feel as though when people covet their work, especially artists, sculptors, Ah, this is my favorite piece. I can't let it go. Mm. You you give this site this unconscious mental block that this isn't going to get much better than this. So why even bother? So for years, when I was making sculpture, I had a favorite. Like ah, this one ah, I can't I can't go. And then I got to the point where I started to say to myself, "What do you think you can't do better than this, asshole? Sell it." I know exactly where you're going. Sell it, with that. Yeah. and you the next day the next one's got to be better. And I had to That's have a the I had to have the mindset. I had to have the mindset. The next one's going to be better mm. to the point where I was, I was just like very flipping about like, I got knives I made and they're, they're fine. And I, I don't ogle them. I don't make a big production about them. I'm, I want to sell them. And I know that the next one will be better, but I feel as though that's the big trap with a lot of artists because it's a total making trap. sculpture, making art in general is the physical manifestation of your hopes your dreams and your validation. And if you feel as though it ain't going to get better than this last one, you're screwed. Yeah, I've, I've okay, so yeah, I totally I totally feel this and, and I thought I'm not about, killing I, you. I'm not like going after you about it. I'm no, just, I get like, it. I love it. Funny. I'm being funny about it. It's so, I like so this is something your bed. I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> but um so this is something I think about all the time. Um So back when I was a painter, I fell into this trap. Every painting that I did had to be better than the last to where I started doing sketches before I did the painting. And I started doing more detailed sketches before I did the painting. And I started sketching on paper and then laying it out on the canvas. And it became so meticulous and a constant pursuit of one-upping your last work right. that it actually became unenjoyable. And it is absolutely a trap. I've thought about it a lot. And I wouldn't say that I'm, <laughs> I, I do have that with my knives to some degree, but I've probably gotten a little better maybe at um, allowing myself just to make things to make them as well. Um, but back when I was painting, I did hit a point uh, at which I, I found it really like cathartic to, I just called it making shitty art. Right. And you would just get a canvas out and just make a shitty painting. Um, and it was kind of a practice that I did specifically to try to break that kind of weird trap that you fall into of just doing, doing something that is too cerebral and too thought out because you do need to let, there's, there's something to where the medium playing with the medium itself is its own exploration. So if you don't allow yourself to, to do that and you're just uh, approaching it purely from a cerebral standpoint, you kind of lose the, the, the point or you lose um, 
the being lost in it really. Um, and, and that's not enjoyable. And uh, that's kind of an, a, a means of making art that probably won't make you as happy to bring it back to the happy thing. Um, there is something about getting lost in the medium and just, just feeling what it's like to forge steel or to, to paint with a sculpting knife or something like that that is absolutely part of it. I'm, I'm not saying that the next one has to be better than the last. I'm not saying you have to have exponential growth with every piece. Yeah. I feel as though there are moments where, you know, it's, I think that they're just, you have to have the, the, the confidence that this is not your end all. Right. That there's more to, there's more to what you have to offer than that, that this last piece of work. That's it. And, and, you know, mm. I've gone through major struggles with, like, I, I was making some friction folders, and I made, I've made a hundred of them. I've easily made a hundred of them. And yeah. I made a couple that were just like, they weren't working. And I was just like, <laughs> what happened? What happened? And, but at mm. the same time, to me, like, making sculpture, too, making art, it's, it's just, I feel that I feel a need to be frivolous with it when it's done. And somebody said, what do you think? And I said, that's ah, fine. I don't want to get too attached because I, want, I don't want to feel as though... It ain't gonna get better than this. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want that fear that this is it. it. Ain't gonna. I actually went to this art show and this. I went to. The, it was a. It was a very famous artist and uh, they were amazing. I'm gonna be very vague. Hmm. And the middle, the mid, and it was a, a body of work, and the new stuff was just wasn't as good as stuff they did. You know, 15, 20 hmm. years ago, and that's just the way it is. You yeah. got to work through some. You got to work through through things, obviously, mm-hmm. and obviously, you you're you're you, the artist is in this moment of you know when you're an artist or or even if a knife maker or a bladesmith, you are in this position of being vulnerable to the judgment of others, as Absolutely. opposed to being as opposed to being confident in the decisions that you feel that you're making. Hmm. Yeah, completely, and that's something to manage always as well. Uh, which is the public uh, reception of it, perception and reception. Uh, yeah. Because on one hand, if you're freed from the need to sell it, like in the case of doing sculpture where you don't need to sell it for an income, I think that's the best case possible for having it truly be art um, because you can do whatever you want or whatever you feel in the moment and not need to, um, uh, uh, I don't know, make it for an audience that's going to buy it so that you can make a living. Well, Um, sorry for interrupting. No worries. So, I mean, it's very interesting because we talk to people, and I I don't know if you've ever been to Blade Show, but we've talked to... next year for the first time, but no, I haven't. In in Atlanta? In Atlanta, yeah. Right. It's amazing, and you're going to meet a lot Mm. of people, and it's a lot of fun. But I always felt this fear for people, especially because... I don't know why anybody would want to put themselves out like that because I remember being a sculptor and I remember, I remember this is, I'll never forget this. I had, we had our, the building that we were in had a, uh, um, open studios mm. and people came through and they'd walk around and we'd had like cocktails and stuff in the hallway and people would just stroll through my shop. And it was this, I, I knew this one artist who refused to let people in. She says, this is my space. <laughs> this is my place. I can't just have people. This is my place of vulnerability. I can't have people just being, I can't have people just being very uh, blasé in my shop. This is my space. And I was just like, I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. And then I saw these people chatting and walking around. One guy had a fucking glass of wine in his hand and a toothpick (laughs) with some cantaloupe. 
and he was talking to his person. He's talking to the person that we were with, and they were just strolling like blase through my shop. And I was just like, I completely understand what she was talking about. And I, I get it. Oh, it's it's just like you you're putting you have these your, people. You have these people that come in that have no interest in art. They're just going to a thing, and they come in. They just ask you these questions like. So they'll be like, so I don't really get art. Um, like, what is what is going on here? And you're just, and then you just have to explain yourself in you know in words, which it's hard to like put any art piece truly into words. But whatever. Then you find yourself explaining this in words to somebody who truly doesn't give a shit. <laughs> in the end, they just want to talk and stroll through something. I had it's a, a weird thing. It's funny that you say that because I've been in that position, and I remember back in the day when. You know, you'd be talking to, you know, I had a show, I, I had some college shows and you, you know, the teacher's coming up to you asking questions and you know, you got to be a little bit present. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, what are your, who are your influences? Tell me about your work. And that was normal art school shit, you know? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, um, I was at an event uh, a little under, about a year ago. My friend, uh, Bree Pettis had this show. He's uh, he's the owner of Bantam Tools. One of mm. the uh, he's an awesome guy. I had, a, had him on this show. Uh, he's awesome. He's just a dynamite guy. And he had a show f- and with uh, Plotter Art, which is like AI art, and these guys mm. who make you know NFTs or making AI art, and they're figuring out algorithms to put into their plotter, and their plotters making art and all this stuff. So I'm talking to this one guy, and I say to him, "So tell me about your work." I fucking that all I said was tell me about your work. I frazzled this guy so hard, <laughs> and he just was just didn't even. I mean, he wasn't in it. Wasn't an artist. He he was just he made NFTs. He made a pile of money in NFTs during the pandemic, and then he found this plotter art, and he was like, I won easy softball. Give me, you know, I gave him a meatball. He'd say anything, <laughs> frankly. And then I started to ask him a couple more questions, like, oh, so tell me, what does this mean? Or what are your what are your what are your That's the guys, worst, man. What are your focuses? What what when you make when you think about your body of work? What is the, what are the things that you like to do? I swear to God, this guy's lines crossed. Then he started sweating. He pulls his phone out and he says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I gotta go. My my girlfriend's calling me." Yeah. And there's no way. There's and he left. He walked away. Put the phone to his ear and walked away. And I was just like, "This motherfucker right here." No, it's crazy. I swear it's the people that probably care the least about the response that ask you those sorts of things. I feel like people that have done art or have a strong interest in art, um, you know, they might ask who your influences are or something like that. But I guess maybe more thoughtful questions at least. It's kind of the uh, I don't know Sunday shoppers or whatever you would call it. The people that are just kind of lollygagging. They kind of ask you the. The questions you want to answer the least, or just I don't know. It's just <laughs> so, so like people would just be like, "So what am I looking at here?" You know, just like just lazy questions like that. And you know, it's 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 a type of thing you don't want to start to explain. But I don't know. I guess part of me looks at it like it's good practice or something. I don't know. But, uh, I I tend to think um, I tend to think it's important to uh, I th- I tend to think that it's important to just be normal. And I think that it's good to ask questions. And I was talking to my sister this weekend, and we were just talking about this woman, this the, the woman that she curated her art. And I was just making everything very simple. I wasn't saying juxtaposition. I wasn't saying any words that I wasn't getting meta. I wasn't getting philosophical. I was just talking about well, this mm. reminds me of this, and this reminds me of this. And I felt as though I was just like it was. I was, and and we were connecting on this very normal pattern. It wasn't like I wasn't getting deep. I wasn't getting. I never get deep. Mm. But I find that though, I find this as though 
the hard part with knife makers are is there is this degree of judgment and i never have done shows before i will never mm. go, i will never have a booth at blade show i feel my opinion god bless you, you do i'll tell <laughs> you why i'll tell you why i'll tell you why i tell you why because i think that it's very similar to like if you had a if you were at a hamburger convention yeah. and you were selling hamburgers at a hamburger convention <laughs> i'm just like i just don't know why anyone will want to you know would want to go out of their way to like sell hamburgers at a hamburger convention and i feel the same way <laughs> so last weekend i was at uh, maker camp and I was like, I wanted to have knives available for makers, and I sold some friction mm. folders. And I and, and I found out that uh, Jay Nielsen, one of the one of the Forge and Fire judges, was going to be there. And all, all of right. a sudden, in my mind, and there were not a lot of knife makers there. And all I could think of was, in my mind, I went my the squirrel cage of my brain started just fucking going crazy. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm going to be going to the bathroom when I come back. Jay Nielsen's going to be there looking at my knives, and I'm just, gonna just be like flexing tips against the table, do, and just uh... your mind goes in the <laughs> Two frankly <laughs> he couldn't have been nicer frankly mm. i met him for a second he he could not have been nicer but my mind i'm thinking can you imagine the ultimate judgment you're worried about being judged and the fucking judge from fortune fires there now how are you going to react and i was oh, actually yeah. like i was cleaning the knives and making sure i was like well i got to make sure that the action's right what if jane Nielsen <laughs> picks this one up and he doesn't pick the other one up and he gets this one up, don't pick and then i said don't pick that one up pick this one up and I, so i like micromanaged every single one and all i can mm. think of is i hate being in this position of judgment I was there. I, hey, I had the other guy, uh, Will. Uh, what was his last name? Will Willis. Will Willis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At uh, the show we did with Neil Kamamura. Oh, at the Fortune last Table. Year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Fortune Table. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, same situation. It was funny. <laughs> so I, I have to bring you back. I have to bring back because this is one thing I missed on last on the yeah. last episode, and I really want to get to it. How did you get into glasswork? Uh, glasswork was actually yeah. So. That was in high school. I I got into glasswork. We chatted a little bit about like the start of, the start of it, I think. But like, it was kind of my first serious artistic pursuit, I guess. Uh, we'd gone to a trip in in Italy years ago, and I just saw some guys blowing glass there. And I guess it was the one of those things. It was similar to knife making when I just kind of like realized like, oh, that's like a thing you can do. And I was just kind of fascinated by the medium and working with fire. Uh, I've, I've kind of learned over the years for me that I've had a strong attraction to any medium that involves fire. So um, that was kind of the first one for me. Uh, so yeah, I got into it in high school and it just kind of became a thing that, you know, I worked at a pizza shop when I was 16 years old huh. at, at Round Table Pizza and it was just the pits, like just, you know, just, just worst, worst entry level job. Yes, uh, I got to stop you in the, in Connecticut. Pits. Uh -huh. A pits is is Italian for pizza. So when you say it's a pits, oh, is it really? I'm like, oh, look, like, oh look. <laughs> Nick really knows what the fuck he's talking about. He's oh, using yeah. the fucking Italian words. Pits. All right, it was the pits. <laughs> Maybe I picked that one up in Italy too when I saw the glass blowers. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, you know, like just crappy entry level job. And I guess that was like kind of my first. You know, I, I got into the glasses just you know infatuation with the medium first. But I, it was a very like early uh, opportunity to do something that was creative for money. And so when I was about 19 years, years old, I started a, uh, a glass jewelry company. And I've kind of like been playing with that a little bit again, Nanda Glass Jewelry, uh, just very lightly. You know, it's definitely nothing that I'm pursuing as strongly as my, my knife making, but it's kind of like a fun side thing. But when I was 19 years old, that was kind of about 19 to 26. That was kind of my primary income. 
And so uh, kind of like, you know, paid my, my, my way forward with that for, I guess, seven years or so. Oh, yeah. You were, weren't you making like bongs and stuff? <laughs> like, uh, your yeah, mom was... might have not liked that I mentioned that in the last episode or something like that. Uh, Don't worry about that. Ms. Anderson, you're not listening to this out one. Of that. <laughs> I forgot about that part. I just remembered that. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, hey, you got to you know, right? try everything, right? <laughs> whatever it <laughs> takes. A, and yeah, whatever it takes and whatever sells. So, you know, I, uh, <laughs> that was, but, yeah, might have, might have, might have tiptoed into that territory yeah, for a bit. That's fine. A little tiptoe, there's no, there's no problem <laughs> with that. I, what's interesting is about the pendants is mm. I spent a little bit of time with uh, just like, like a long weekend at, in Kentucky at Center College mm. by, with a sculptor, a glassblower by the name of Stephen Ralph Powell, who has recently died, recently mm. passed away in the past couple of years. And I, I got to watch them, you know, make these incredible orbs and you know, vessels and with, you know, they would yep. blow the big ball and the, I don't think that's the right terminology. <laughs> Fine, we'll go with it. And then they'd lay out this this they'd lay out this like rectangle of small pieces and they roll it over to collect it onto the bowl and then they would blow it and make it this whole thing and i started to think about what you were doing and i feel as though that there's a very strong connection with the glass pennants even if it's just a your methodology with your use of uh um mosaic pattern damascus oh yeah stuff yeah, that's cool you picked that up. There's definitely so much connection between the two. Uh, so in glass, they call it marine uh, or millefiori. And it's a process of kind of laying down different kind of like strips of color. Or you can, you can do like a cane stack uh, to, to kind of create a pattern and extrude that shape out to, to get different sort of patterns or kind of pictorial images. So it's probably the most similar to what people are doing with Canis or Damascus, but which I kind of haven't done. Uh, but there's definitely like strong connections in mosaic Damascus as well. So that is something that I've always kind of wanted to do in glass. And I didn't do a ton of Marine back when I did glass, uh, uh, you know, like back when I was doing glass all the time. Um, but I've definitely like followed it and watched what people are doing. And there's some glass blowers doing things that are just as impressive as all of the Damascus makers, you know, it's, there's, it's, it's crazy how many connections there are and how uh, disjointed those two mediums still are, you know, the glass world and the, the knife making slash metal smithing world, they're still like super separate. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, uh, like crossover really. So it's something I've always kind of wanted to, to incorporate together is my glass with my metal or the other way around. And I've done a little bit of that, but you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of a long-term goal that I still haven't really done. But there's there's the similarity is in the is in the preparation of the materials and yeah, it's very like forward. There's no going backwards. There's no with the way you forge these beautiful feather Damascus blades and all the the mosaic pattern Damascus. I would imagine, I know that for blacksmithing, there's no going backwards. You know, you can grab a grinder and fix a little something here and there. But at the same time, with what you're doing, it's very forward. It's always preparation towards the next step. And, and glass blowing has got to be the same way. Absolutely. The mindset's yeah, exactly the same. Yeah, it, it, I I'd find, or I do find that in glass, it's more in the moment to where everything is happening as it's molten. So there's, there's definitely the prep work like you're talking about, but it does have more of the, once you're, once things are molten, you're just, you're just going and you can, 
you can garage it in the kiln at certain points, but there's a lot more of just having to act in the moment while everything's molten, which is something that I absolutely love about glasswork. It's so, it's just so, you're just so in the moment. It's, What's garage it in the kiln mean? I love um, that expression, so by the way. That garaging just... The name of this, that might be the name of this episode. <laughs> Nick Anderson, garaging it in the kiln. That's it. I'm writing that down right now. There we go. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, garaging in the kiln is just kind of a, if you're kind of at a, a midpoint in the process to where the glass is cooled down and it's not in a molten state, you can just hold it at kind of an annealing temperature, 1050 for borosilicate, and uh, garaging can be a slightly higher temperature. But it's just kind of holding it at a temperature at which it's not going to crack when you put it back in the flame, but it's uh, solid oh. enough to where the form isn't going to change. I that. see. So it's like, it's similar to like, because I know that some, and this is getting nerdy and all, but I know that some... <laughs> stainless steels are air hardening so if you're holding it at a higher temperature you're not going to hard you're going to not harden it yeah i guess there's some similarity there as you know uh with the glass the main thing is just that it's not it's not going to deform so it's it's hot enough so that molecularly the glass is a fluid but hot enough to it's not going to melt all over the place yeah or uh, cool enough to where it's not going to melt everywhere it shouldn't so like a proper uh, garaging or annealing temperature kind of has that to where it's going to remain fluid, but it's actually objectively a solid. How long can you garage something in the kiln? So basically what you're saying is it allows you to take a break. It allows you to take a break. Yeah. I mean, I would say indefinitely, but there's got to be some sort of like crystal growth sort of thing that might happen that I'm not currently aware of, but uh, there's got to be something that would happen to where, you know, if you did it for a super long time it might adversely affect the glass but uh for our purposes it's kind of indefinitely you can just you can garage it for hours and hours and that is the know. greatest expression garage <laughs> yeah listen let's take a break let's get a sandwich we'll garage it in the kiln get a sandwich totally. come back and right to it and there's there's parts of the process though to where you can't take that break like right it like points at which you're melting down a whole thing that you've kind of constructed and that might be kind of like forge welding where you're heating everything up to a, a temperature at which it's all going to fuse together, essentially. And at that point, you can't leave. You can't leave in glass when that's the case. You can't leave in Damascus when you're forge welding. I mean, you can walk away while it's at a forging temp, forge welding temp. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, you're in it while that's happening. There's and no garaging steel in the kiln. There's no garaging. Yeah, for steel, you just let it cool down as long right. as it's not like an air-hardening steel like you're talking about. So... I mean, I love I love those pendants that you do because it reminds me of it just they're just so beautiful, and I just wonder if because I see a lot of similarities. I know you did some a little bit of some plug welding stuff, very similar to mm. our friend Josh uh, Prince's work, and there has to have been a connection there. But I would imagine that there must be you must feel as though how can i get this color cuz your 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 glasswork is very colorful and that's probably one of the reasons why i like colorful handles or my sculptures mm. are all very highly colorful and it's because i work with steel for so long and i'm just like i need a little pop i need a little something yeah. i would imagine that like in your mind you think how can i bring this color into the knife making yeah, so with my glass, my main pursuit is color. Absolutely. Uh, I, I swear I've been chasing this pink for years, uh, like this color of golden pink. And they actually, there's a company that just came out with this color called Gold Ruby, uh, 
I think they're, they're called molten aura glass, but they just came out with this color. That's kind of that exact color I've been chasing forever. And I'm, I'm totally in love with it, but yeah, with my glass, it's, it's always about chasing color because you know, with knife making, it's about pattern or form right. uh, with glass. My forms are kind of fixed. Usually they're going to be round uh, or they might have a bit of a teardrop shape or an inverse teardrop. Uh, but the form is kind of not as, as important as, the color, I would say, is my my next, you know, kind of thing I'm always pursuing. And then the detail of the pattern is always super cool. But color is definitely the one, especially because I work with, uh, like, 24-karat gold and silver a lot. And working with those two metals, they are so subject to changing color depending on what kind of flame you expose it to that you can get, you know, just totally mudded out shitty colors or just these incredible, like... Uh, iridescent metallic sheens and and that's that's one of those things that's so fun because it can go either way it can go it can it can look like crap or it can be just gorgeous and so that's where glass is really fun too there's a lot of unknown and a lot of uh uh you know high probability for failure whether you get crappy colors or whether the piece breaks or something like that i've i've always felt as though that blacksmithing i'm just using blacksmithing is i refer to it as highly performative Mm. I feel like there's a lot of choreography involved, no matter who, what you're doing. Like there's, you have a, you have this, it's not like machining where you can look and you can get your calipers and you can take a little bit of this, take a little bit of that thing. <laughs> when you're forging in and of itself, it's more like, you know, it's this, there's, there, there are certain calculations that are strictly feel. They're finesse. They're, they're movements that you have that you just can't replicate with, you know, CNC or machine or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, based on the glass blowing that I've seen, it's very similar. So I wonder if you know you're a young kid, you're doing all this glass stuff. How much of your mindset towards glass making kind of cha- helped you with the knife making? Because there has mm-hmm. to be a connection. There has to be this like I did this shit before. I yeah. know where I'm supposed to be going in my head with this. This isn't that different from mitt blowing glass. Yeah, there's there's definitely that connection, and I, I felt it when I started forging. Uh, the main thing that I noticed was managing something that has a heat base. So when you heat up the steel, and it it you know it works better at a bright yellow heat than it does at an orange heat, and just working something when it's hot, and knowing how, of course, the material heats and cools differently. But I did definitely have a leg up. It, there's definitely a connection with the heat base and managing something that has a heat base. So. Um, yeah, that, that was something to where I felt that connection. See, I would think, I would also think maybe patience. Patience for sure. (laughs) It's funny, like back in the day, I I always used to be so frustrated with how often something, things can go wrong with glass and how often you lose pieces. And I was always like, God, I just wish there was a medium that didn't have that. And when I got into steel, I was like, oh, sweet. Here's a medium that like, it's not going to crack on you or break while you're doing it. And it turned out that knife making is way worse than glass. It's just, it's like, there's so much more that can go wrong with making knives than with glass. So, uh, you know, I didn't solve anything there, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's that, that was always my frustration and that was kind of my hope in getting into the metal work, but, uh, it's just a thing. Yeah. Uh, so that definitely like tempered my it helped to temper my patience early on because knife making is just so much more demanding of your patience than that. 
it's it's crazy. I'm still, you know, I'm I'm eight years into knife making at this point, and I'm still constantly just, you know, trying to <laughs> cultivate patience around all of it. But one thing that we've talked about on Knife Talk, why well, I talk about it a lot, is experience is underrated. Hmm. And there's this when I think of patience, I think of the patience of of not being frustrated with yourself for not advancing as quickly as you in your mind you want to. Yeah. Like I was just talking about, I'm turning 50. Mm. I've, I look back to all my experiences and I see how they've influenced all the decisions that I've made, whether it be my sculpture or the way I raised my kid or I don't, you know, if somebody asked me, like you just said, I've been knife making for eight years. I've been around, you know, I, 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 I found a Facebook messenger said I made my first knife like nine years ago. But in my mind, I'm just like, yeah, but I was forging for 10 more years before that. And Definitely. then I was, met, I was a fabricator five more years before that. And I was a metal sculptor mm. five years before that. Exactly. And I was just like, it all is the goddamn same. Like, I don't see any difference between any of it. And, and it all informed who I am. But at the same time, the experiences that I've had in a metal shop informed my outlook and my expectations throughout my career. And yep. it's to the point where I feel as though patience is something that you learn. I would think mm. glass blowing when you first start. I, I glad I we brought I brought some when I went down to Center College. My buddy Miles was my college roommate, so we're going to get to Center mm -hmm. College for the long weekend. We're going to watch some glass blowing. Bring some steel down. We'll melt some steel onto it. We'll do a little <laughs> bit of we'll do a little glass. We're going to do a little glass blowing. So I went in the shop and I torch cut these bolts and I torch mm. cut these nuts and I torch cut these things. And I didn't know what we we're going to do, but I'm like, we're going to drop some glass on this and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I just remember bringing a pile of stuff down and then we had a little free time with the, one of the with uh, one of the guys. He's like, what do you want to do? And, I'm, and Miles says, let's we brought all this steel. Let's drop some glass in the steel and throw it in the kiln afterwards. We'll bring it all home. And I, and in my mind, I was thinking about the fact that I was impatient to be, and it, he showed me how to blow a, like a, I, I, I tried blowing glass one time. I swear to God, it was, I blew a ball the size of a golf ball. I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going <laughs> to die. And I saw these guys blowing these giant vessels and I was mm. like, how the fuck are they doing that without a compressor? <laughs> and I, and I, and my, and I was so disappointed that I couldn't get good immediately. Like I, mm. I had, and I was young. I was like 20, 20, 20, I was 20 years old. And I was just like, so I did not have the capacity for patience. Yep. And I feel now is that I'm totally acceptant of the fact that there's so many things that I don't know and I'm glad and I'll, and it's okay. And yeah, I just never figure it all out. I would want imagine that when you were learning glass blowing at 19 or 16, mm -hmm. 16, 16, it yeah. took you a long time before you were able to make stuff that you liked. Definitely. Yeah. In the beginning, it was a lot of just like being fascinated with just the fact that you could melt something. And that, that, that held my interest for a long time. Just the, the kind of magic of the medium itself. So that was, that was always really fun as a way of starting. But yeah, it definitely took a lot of time to, to start making anything functional or interesting, interesting, you know, like, Marbles are a good starting point. Oh, uh, yeah. Just blowing hollow forms, lots of like small vessels and stuff like that. Like perfume bottles was a big one. Uh, but, you know, um, yeah, lots of small stuff. And a lot of that's just kind of experimenting with the color, experimenting with the medium and all of that. But the nice thing is in the beginning, the medium is so interesting that that holds your interest for a long time. So, yeah, that kind of carried it over and, uh, you know, kind of bridged it, I guess, with the part of you then that's 
more accustomed to the medium and wanting to make things that are really good and kind of the lack of patience, perhaps, around not making something better. Um, How, here's the question, how are you going to merge the knife making and the glass blowing? Because it's got mm. to happen. It's got to happen. Yeah, so I, I see actually... it. I see it. Like I looked at that. I looked at your your feed, and I and I saw those pendants, and then I saw that yeah. that that uh, that chopper, that cleaver with the 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 Josh Prince style, that little pendant in there, and I'm just like, oh, that's that's one up. of his pieces, actually. The uh, the plug weld. It's a collab with Josh and I. So that little plug weld is one of his pieces of Damascus. But you put that you put it so close in your feed to the pendants, and I'm just like, oh yeah, my man wants to make that connection. <laughs> He's de desperate to make that connection. How oh. are you going to make the connection? <laughs> so yeah, I I've been thinking about it so much, and a lot of it comes down to cold working the glass. And so I just got, you know, this whole past year has just been so much around like setting up shops and setting up my house and building this unit upstairs and all this stuff. And I finally just got a, uh, a machine for cold working the glass. You might have seen somewhere on my feed, there's, yeah. there's a little like crystal sort of yeah. thing that red. I ground. Yeah, it's red. Crystal, mm -hmm. yeah. So that, that was kind of like a first take at cold working. And so that was on a friend's machine. And I, I finally was given by a knife maker, actually, uh, a machine for cold working glass. Um, and so it's been sitting in my garage. I still have, haven't had time to set it all up and stuff, but that's right there. That's the, the, the ticket to doing it. And so it's really going to be kind of like the way I see it to begin with is going to be kind of like inlaying in glass into handles or something like that. Um, and, you know, kind of like pocketing out something in a piece of handle material, inlaying glass into that. So it's not exposed you know, if somebody like dropped the knife, it's not going to hit on the glass. Right. Uh, so to kind of like protect it. And what I want to do is kind of experiment also with showing the Damascus through the glass. So you can maybe have glass inside of the handle piece with the Damascus showing through. That all sounds super fun. And that's kind of that's kind of how I've been thinking about incorporating it. My man, Miles, Miles Van Rensler is just, he's, he's, I helped him build a foundry. Um, mm. This is a years, this is a long time ago. He's, awesome miles van ran on instagram and he, what he started to do was he started to make these bronze castings and then he would blow glass into the bronze castings oh yeah i've seen people do that yeah and then he would you know when you're done you just gotta bring it all into the kiln because i don't know what temperature these what glass does you know but part of me wonders like you gotta i feel i can see you getting so i don't know how hot it has to be well how hot does glass have to be when you put it in the kiln to kind of like what normalize or what harden or what it, what? uh to we call it annealing so 1050 1050 for bor borosilicate which is the type of glass that i use i think it's somewhere in the 900s for soda lime glass which is the kind that you know uh the italian glass blowers are using or like you know chihuly anybody doing it with a, right. a blow pipe and a furnace that's all soft, what we call soft glass. And so annealing temperatures on that, I believe are in the 900s. Not sure, but nowhere close to as high as what we work with, with uh, steel. Um, of course, when you're melting it, it's, it's higher, you know. But uh, melting, the, the torch that I use is kind of, you know, 
above 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's it's really hot. Wow. I See, I, in my mind, I see I'm going to talk glass now because I know a couple words. Mm. <laughs> I totally see you making a set of scales out of aluminum or bronze or something like that till they fit yeah. with this pocket in them and slump some glass in there and then oh, shove man. the whole thing into the kiln. It's so funny you say that. So hey, I look designed, at me. Fucking I designed, glass I've, so I've designed a handle out of aluminum. Look uh, at this! <laughs> And it's got a spot for an inlay in it. Uh, and I'm currently, not for my knife making, but I'm currently doing, playing with uh, some lost wax stuff. So it's so funny. I mean, you, you kind of nailed, you hit it on the head. Yeah. That's all I can think of because this is what my guy does, Miles does. Yeah. And all I can think of is how, cause he, how do you get, but it's not just, you know, glass, the, here's the cool thing about glass blowing. Glass blowing is okay. You make the pendant, and then you, I, in my mind, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, he's got the CNC. He could cut out the spot. But I was like, yeah, but if he drops that hot, if he slumps that slumping, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, <laughs> if you don't know, motherfuckers, I know what slumping is. Is you take a glass and you heat it up, and it kind of falls in. It falls in, or you like, you like drop a little bit of glass in there. My, I have a, I have this glass sculpture my friend made of a, of a glass flag he made, and then he melted it onto this casting of his face so his face is hmm. sticking through and that's called slumping so i my mind i'm thinking yeah you make a pendant and you drill a little hole and you drop it in there and make it fit but if you could get hot molten glass to fit in that hole perfect and then make some weird like shape and stuff now you got something kind of <laughs> interesting you know i could see one of them i could see one of them pendants just slumped into the handle scales and you got your corby bolts all squared away everything fits nice you do a little bingo bango bongo a couple of corbys and you're there oh man it's gonna happen oh yeah, you're gonna see it i love the uh, i love the push too i need you know it's like one of those things that I keep being like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, and oh, then, you know. But Nick, uh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. even like on like a, <laughs> even on like a wah handle on the back. Yeah, on the, that's I can another... see like a fucking a fucking stud on the back, like a big a like a big glass piece in the back. And you know what? If they drop it, fuck them. That's their problem. It's not <laughs> <Totally>. your problem. <laughs> it's not your yeah. problem. That'd be an easier kind of means to work it in too. It'd kind of go perfectly with some of the round forms that I've yeah. done. Because I can just do like a little bit of jewelry work to kind of do a, a bezel You could even set make the something. form. You could even make the form to drop something in there. You totally. could make the form to fit exactly the Y handle. And then it, it like you, you, you can kind of even have that pendant and you blow it in a little bit. And then it just kind of fills that, that dude. Oh yeah! Come on, Nick! Come on, <laughs> right. Nick! Don't let me right. down, it's a good man! Push. It's a good push. We're gonna do it. Yeah, we we're gonna make it happen. We gotta fucking garage the kill. We're baby. actually gonna make it happen because we're talking about it right now. Now I have a, you yeah, know, now I got to these, these thieves listening are gonna fucking take it. <laughs> I know. You gotta, that's what you gotta worry about. There's I know. Thieves. We're putting it out there now, and you know, now everyone else is gonna try to do it first. So I got to, you know, not, I gotta beat them to the punch. Let me tell you why you're gonna do it first. Hey, but you know what? They need a whole glass setup, and they gotta learn it first. I got a little bit of a leg up. I'm gonna say I'm gonna take a shot across the bow to some of the listeners i wouldn't worry about a thing nick they're still on there's every you know what there's this i feel like and i'm gonna have brian house on in a couple of weeks oh sweet i feel as though I, he's a good guy he's a great guy i like totally. brian very much but i feel as though that everyone's carting before the horse i think there's a cart mm. before the horse with the way people are learning how to do things and there's everyone's interested in damascus everyone wants to make billets everybody wants mm -hmm. to i mean coal iron can't sell these goddamn uh presses fast enough and everybody yeah. wants these i feel as though that there's this cart before the horse because 
I feel as though people aren't learning the basics of forging at first. And, I, yeah. and, I, and so in my mind, these guys, they, you know, you got, you got plenty of time. You're going to get this down. You're going to, I'm not worried about you. Oh, about me. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm so, not worried yeah, about hopefully. you. No one's going to steal from you. Come on, yeah. Nick. Hoping, man, that's all, you know, it's always a thing, but I, yeah, I try to not, not to think about it. You know, it's like people are going to get heavy inspiration or steal or whatever, you know, and to be honest, a lot of what I've done is all inspired from things people have done. So it's, it's, yeah, but you know, you're it's, it's on more your, long continuum. And, but and, you're on a, but see, here's the interesting thing about sculpture and you're, you're as an artist and, and as well, is it's step by step by step. You're yeah. making subtle innovations of your own work that are changed. Like right now, I'm planning this coming weekend on I'm I already know what I'm going to do and I, and it's a variation of what I've done. And mm. when I went to this art show, I was inspired, but I wasn't inspired to make this person's work. I was inspired to make my own work and get fired up. And then this stuff is going to be a not a departure from what I've done, but it's going to be an evolution. Like mm. all my work, if you looked at all the work, the body of my sculpture since I was 19, there is a connection there. Everything came from somewhere. Everyone came. I didn't just start doing this and then I did that and I did this and I did that. Everything had a reason and there was this very logical hmm. progression to the yeah. point now where I know that the giant lure sculptures I, I've been making for fucking 30 years or something like that <laughs> is they're, don't, they're not supposed to look like lures. They're kind of supposed to look like lures, but not exactly. So there's, hmm. there's been this evolution all the way through to now where I'm going to be working on these long, giant standing sculptures that are going to be closer to Brancusi sculptures hmm. of my work. So I don't, get, I don't get all bound up about like, you know, I feel as though, like I said, about to be 50. I'm trying to, I say it a lot. I say it a lot, Nick. And the reason why I say it a lot is because I feel as though if I say it enough, I'll embrace it. And then if I embrace it. What, I'll that you're turning 50? That I'll subtly accept it. This well, is hey, all, I'm, I'm trying to manifest my ha own happiness. Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing pursuit. It's a, I still want to talk a little bit more about the patience thing. Let's do it. Just, Let's go. It's just, it's just such a, it's such an ongoing practice. And it's something I think about like literally day in and day out, like no matter what the medium is. Um, <clears throat> I guess, so when we were talking about it, I, I, I was just thinking about this, this big kind of uh, turning point or super helpful thing that, that happened for me was reading the book, uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, and his whole approach was so helpful for me, which is every single day, no matter what, you just show up. And if you have zero inspiration, and if you're not liking what you're doing, guess what? You still just have to sit there and either think about it or do it. But it's, it's kind of a disciplinary thing. And you kind of think about it as just like a life practice of showing up for the thing you're doing. And I guess the, 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 the most helpful thing for me was how he incorporated the days where it just sucks. Because there's a yeah. lot of days where you kind of just hate it or it just sucks or something's not happening. And instead of leaving or walking away from it or just not doing it or throwing your hands up, just sitting there and just kind of being with it and just still thinking about it or sitting there doing nothing, but you're still there. You have to be there. 
and deal with that shitty part of it because it's such a quintessential part of the creative process. Like it just can't, definitely can't always be good and definitely can't always be inspiring. And so after reading his book and kind of thinking about it that way as just like a disciplinary process, like it's, it's, you know, his whole like title is based off the art of war. Um, But, you know, with, there's a strong roots in discipline but just thinking about it as almost like a meditative practice or something to where, you know, for people who've tried meditation or have a meditation practice, a lot of it is just sitting there with your shitty thoughts and still trying to just, you know, have a practice. And very similarly with making stuff, those days where you have those shitty thoughts or the lack of inspiration uh, and, just, and just sludging or trudging through it, um, it, it was such a helpful way to think about it for me, just uh, in the sense of being disciplined. And it's never been the same for me ever since reading that book. And it was one of the most helpful things I've ever kind of come across creatively. And it even ties back to some of the stuff we were talking about, uh, like one-upping your work and always doing something better and being perfect, um, is instead of always you know one-upping your work or being perfect, it's just being there and just doing the thing. And sometimes it is going to be the best thing you made in a long time. Sometimes it's going to suck, but you're always still showing up there. And that has been a great means for cultivating patience as well. It's just kind of the discipline around uh, having to deal with all of that. Discipline is underrated. And I yeah. have a, I, I went a, a kind of a roundabout way of getting there when I was 19 which I had an opportunity to have a, 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 um, a shop when I was mm-hmm. like 21 or something like that. It was in Brooklyn. And I wanted to be an artist. And I went to art school. I went to, I went to art. I was an art major. I, you know, I wanted to walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah. And I did not want to be thought of as just a dilettante. And I, did, <laughs> I, wanted, to, I wanted people to think that I was serious. And I showed up and I made it my job. And I yeah. thought about what I was going to do and I figured out what every day was going to be like. And I wasn't going to sit around being bored and I was going to be, I wanted to be taken seriously. And I totally. felt as though if I just say I'm an artist and people just on today, I'm just going to sit around and do nothing. I felt it very important to be taken seriously. Mm. And for me, discipline and organization have been a monumental part of my mental health mm. because mm-hmm. to the point where I now have an employee. I've had someone for over a year and I have to make sure that we're busy enough that he's busy. I don't want him sweeping. I feel as though when you're in a spot where you turn to a guy and I've been in this position as an intern where you say, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Go sweep. That's a failure to me Hmm. where it's like you have nothing else to do. Go sweep. I don't do. I make sure that this guy is has stuff to do so it makes me more organized and i am disciplined in terms of what we're doing as a team day to day uh morning afternoon day to day week to week month to month and that has made me a better sculptor it has made Mm. me a better knife maker it has made me a better parent i am totally a hundred percent and whatever your motivation is uh, you know showing up to do it it's you're right. I mean, it's a thousand percent, but it's it what it what separates people. It separates the doers from the talkers. Totally. Yeah, it's a huge. And it, we in this country, we see discipline 
as uh, one as, as like you don't want to do it. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Discipline to like eat right. Discipline to exercise. Take care of your body. Do the things you're supposed to do. And that's part of discipline too. Totally. And I, I don't see any dif- I don't see any difference. I don't see any difference, frankly. Yeah, it's all one big practice. I mean, right. yeah, even even eating right and exercise factors into your work. I mean, factors into your your physical oh. and mental health, which then you know makes you a better sculptor. It makes you more get you up know, in the uh, morning. It makes you get up in the morning. It makes it, you have better energy levels. Like all of it, it's all it, it's it's all connected, and it all takes discipline. Absolutely, it's hard. People don't like it. You don't like, they don't like, they don't like <laughs> to be told what to do when their doctor says, don't do this. They still do it. It's all, you know, look, it's hard. It's fucking hard, Nick. Life yeah. is not easy, especially if you're an independent artist trying to make it in this world and find happiness. Totally. Yeah. You got to make your own way. And, uh, there's, there's no map. There's no rule book. And yeah, that's an interesting thing. You're, you're definitely making it up as you go. And it's it's one of the coolest parts of it, but it's also yeah you're 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 making it up as you go. That's it, Nick Anderson, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Nanda, no, you said it all. You said it all. You said it all. What's next for Nick Anderson, Nanda Knives? What's next? Mm. So yeah, um, a big thing I've been working on lately is this new sort of startup. It's kind of replaced a lot of my digital design work, which has been nice. And so, you know, now, now that this past year of like new house and new shops and all the setup stuff is done, you know, it's, it's definitely just hammering at this new startup and getting in my shop and making knives on the weekends. Um, the, the startup that we're doing is it's, it's me and one business partner. He was uh, a client of mine for some years, bought a whole bunch of my knives. And just over the years, we, we chatted quite a bit about, you know, my own knives don't have like a production mentality and they're not set up for production. They take so long to make one. Um, and so it's always been this thing I've thought about is like just also having a line that's more producible and, and all of that. So been chatting with him over the years and yeah, we decided to, to jump into it and, and start that this year. So we're about four months in, we're making kind of culinary accessories and some small knives. And yeah, a lot of it right now is just kind of business formation and ideas and, and, you know, designing stuff. But yeah, definitely talk about a process oriented approach with this. We're definitely thinking about it has to work in in a way that, you know, we can, we can actually make numbers of pieces and it has to work that way. So it's kind of a combination of design and production process. So that's been super fun. It's been a, a big new change for me and I like it so much more than the, you know, I've done the digital design work for 15 years at this point, and it is truly just a job. <laughs> right. I, I get a little bit of creative inspiration from it, maybe, but uh, it's been really nice to kind of segue or sidestep now into that whole thing. Uh, and then in addition to that, you know, three days a week, about Friday through Sunday, I'm getting into my shop and just, you know, making making knives like I used to, which having this year where I kind of didn't do it, that sucked. But yeah, it's just so nice to be back to a normal daily life and kind of being back in the creativity. Um, One other cool thing that's happening is I'm going back to Thailand for the first time in five years. Wow. uh, Next month. So I can't believe it's been five years. I mean, that's just insane. I mean, God, you're talking about like 
you know, turning 50 and I'm just, I'm just like, I don't know how five years just went by. I, I lived in Thailand for five years. That blew my mind. And another five years have gone by and there's a decade and it seems to have gone by really quick. And yeah, that's just a trip. And this is the first time I'm, I'm, you know, going back in, in quite a long time. And, and I guess it's just crazy <laughs> how time works like that. But I am excited to, to get back there, see Che, my, my knife-making buddy. See all che my, Americano. Che Americano, the man. Um, and I'm definitely going to be taking cooking classes. That's a big uh, focus of mine going back is just, you know, when I lived there, there's so much Thai food everywhere that I didn't take Thai cooking seriously. I was always cooking other stuff. And after moving back from there, I've been obsessed with cooking Thai food. And so, you know, going, going back, I definitely want to like take several cooking classes from some awesome chefs. And um, so that's going to be a big focus of mine as well. Nick Anderson. It's <laughs> always good talking with you. You we got to do it more often. You got to open invite. Anytime you want to come on, anytime you want to just shoot the shit, you let me know. Sweet, open man. invite. I love doing it. It's always, it's always great chatting with you, man. Nanda Knives, ladies and gentlemen. And I hope his mom's not listening to this one because we did say that you did make bongs <laughs> when you were younger, but that's okay. Mom, <laughs> listen, he's got an old man. Now he's in living it. Come on. It's all, it's all okay. Don't give him any trouble. Guys, I want you to go to Nanda Knives on Instagram. If he has a newsletter... Get on that because you want to make sure you take a class from my man. Nick Anderson's the man. It's always great talking with you. And uh, you're always welcome back. And I hope to see you soon. And good luck with everything. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome chatting with you, man. You too, my brother. All right, guys. We'll see you next week.